Welcome to this Forthright Radio for October 20th, 2021. I'm Joy LaClaire. Our guest today is Giulio Boccoletti. In addition to having been a lead author of the fifth assessment report to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, he was Chief Strategy Officer and Global Managing Director for Water at the Nature Conservancy, where he led a team of over 200 freshwater scientists, policy experts, economists, and on-the-ground conservation practitioners, promoting action on water issues by governments and businesses. Earlier in his career, he was a partner of the consulting firm McKinsey & Company, where he co-founded the water practice and worked with businesses and governments around the world. He trained at MIT, Princeton, and Bologna University in physics and atmospheric science. His book, Water, a Biography, was published in September 2021 by Pantheon Books. Welcome to Forthright Radio, Giulio Boccoletti. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Your book, Water, a Biography, surveys the role of water on the planet Earth and especially the role of water on Homo sapiens and their efforts to control it. Early on, you declare that our usual way of thinking of this history is that, and I'm quoting you here, It's a story of technological emancipation from nature in which science and engineering have given humanity, for better or worse, full control over its destiny. And you continue, this story is familiar. It is also wrong. The story of water is not technological, but political. And that's the end of that quote. So would you please elaborate on this central theme of your work, and then we can review some of the history. Sure. My pleasure. One of the things that I wanted to do with this book was elevate the story of water out of the depths of technical and engineering discussions into the limelight of humanist and political discussion. And so I wanted to really reveal this point that issues of water are not really about technical solutions. They're about choices that we have, right? And so in order to understand that, you have to think that, you know, we've been on the planet, Homo sapiens has been on the planet for some 300,000 years. But something particular happened 10,000 years ago when we became sedentary and suddenly we found ourselves standing still in a world of moving water. Water moved around us. And all of a sudden, we realized that the phenomena associated with water, the storms, the floods, the droughts, all transcend the scale of the individual and require for human response, coordination and collective action. They require us to organize in order to move water from where it is to where we need it or ensure that we protect ourselves from floods and so forth and so on. These are never issues that are solved by individuals, they're always solved by society exercising its collective agency. And so by that very nature, they become political issues. They become questions about who decides what, who decides what we do together on the landscape, who decides what our home needs to look like in order to achieve water security. And that sort of set of questions and the choices that we made in answering them over the course of 10,000 years have really shaped a kind of political history. And the thing that I try to do in this book is a archaeology of ideas, where I, I try to reconstruct how those choices influenced institutions of society over time, showing how political institutions were shaped by the choices that we had to make on the landscape, which I show how legal institutions were shaped by those choices that we had to make on the landscape. And so 
Back to your quote, the point is not that engineering and technology doesn't matter. Of course it does. But it's a symptom of a higher order and broader set of issues that people confront in thinking about water, which is the choices of how we live together in a complicated, powerful, and sometimes unruly environment. You actually go all the way back to the Big Bang, which we won't go that far. But climate change is ever on our minds. And the changing climate at the end of the last ice age, which you sort of alluded to, that deserves some thought. Let's begin there and and then go into the era of agriculture. Well, I hope people listening to this will then be curious enough to to get the book and read what is a rather extensive view of antiquity. But you're right. I mean, there is this kind of very particular moment, which I alluded to earlier, which is when we became sedentary. That's the heart of the Neolithic Revolution about 10,000 years ago. And it so happens that at that time, the world was coming out of the last glacial maximum. Now, it was coming out in geologic terms, right? I mean, this was a process that ran over several thousand years. But we do know that when the Neolithic Revolution happened, when human beings first transitioned from being hunter-gatherers and fundamentally nomadic to settling into permanent communities and becoming sedentary, we know that the water environment around them was still changing quite dramatically because glaciers were still retreating, water that had been locked up in in ice was streaming down the mountains into the floodplains and towards the sea, coastlines were changing as a result. And so it was a very mobile environment that these first sedentary communities had to face. The very first communities were settled in the Fertile Crescent, in the sort of Levant and in the in the dry lands of northern Israel and sort of higher northern Mesopotamia. But the real kind of turning point was actually in southern Mesopotamia around the first city-states. And that's where I tell in the book, uh, I spend a fair amount of time talking about the relationship between the agricultural landscape, the water landscape, and the formation of the first states, Uruk being the the first city-states that we know of in human history. And pretty much ever since, this relationship between farming as the foundation of human economy political systems that govern those economies and water has become the dominant theme for much of human history all the way to the beginning of the 20th century. I was intrigued by your reminder in this history that the role of religion in this era, would you just talk a bit about that? Because the modern person thinks of it as a technological and perhaps a political thing, but the politics back there was very hard to extricate from religion. So please just talk a bit about that. Absolutely. The basic point here is that As you go back in this archaeology of ideas that reflect a response that society had to these very difficult water conditions, you start realizing that rather high-order abstractions end up being related to water. Now, some of those abstractions, as I said, are political, and there's a fair amount in the book about the rise of the state and the structure of the state, right? But some of them become even religious. Now, in some ways, you could imagine there's an obvious response to water on the landscape in religious terms, which is the sort of pantheistic tradition that saw divinity in the manifestation of water on the landscape, right? The river gods and the floods being expressions of the arbitrary desires of gods on the landscape. But the point I make in the book is that even religious manifestations that come later, for example, the Abrahamic tradition, which then generates both Judaism and Islam as well as the Christian tradition ultimately, which is a rather 
abstract kind of theology, right? It, it predicates um, monotheism, for example. It predicates a God that does not have a, a context outside of it, right? Even that can be at least in part traced to the particular conditions that Levant offered and that the patriarchal generation lived in. Now, that's kind of all very abstract, but that has very practical implications. Because if you read, those of us who have read the Old Testament, and if you read it with this lens, you start realizing that a lot of morality and even the ethics that are contained in the parables and in the stories of the Old Testament are really instructions for life in a scarce environment all the way to the instructions to cooperate. We know that uh, societies that live in scarcity tend to be more cooperative, partly because they need to rely on markets with people that they don't know in order to supply food and other goods they may not be able to grow locally. And that then leads you to an ethical framework and a moral framework that incentivizes trust and incentivizes trust building. And, And that often is aided by a common religion. And so in the book, I sort of try and trace the origins of that abramitic tradition to the water conditions of the Levant. And I also make the point that then that sort of initial development then trickles through things like the Jewish legal tradition, for example, all the way into the legal tradition of Christianity and beyond. And so sitting here in the 21st century and looking back, you can see the DNA of those early experiences with water-scarce environments in legal system and religious systems that at first sight appear quite remote from any material condition. Yes, and you go into the realities of climate and water resources and migration, and we won't go into it now, but that has a lot to do with the tradition that we have inherited of the Bible with the sojourn in Egypt and all that kind of stuff. But I want to move now to the later time where the politics becomes better recorded, and that's in the Greek era. Talk about the relationship between water and how the fundamentals of what we have taken as our inheritance politically arose in Greece. Yeah, well, the sort of uh, end point, if you will, of the journey of antiquity, which I describe in the first part of the book, is indeed the legacy of democracy and of republican institutions that emerges out of Greece and then subsequently out of Rome. It's an interesting sort of evolution. And, you know, I have to be careful. I don't, at no point in the book do I make the claim that this is a deterministic story. It's not like water by itself creates democracy. That's not the point. But the journey that these societies go through is shaped, the choices they make are shaped in part by the conditions they live in. In the case of Greece, it's very interesting because the constitutional reforms that are the famous legacy of the Greek world, the reforms in Athens of Solon and Cleisthenes that gave us the sort of democratic experiment of Athens, or indeed the constitution of of Sparta, which uh, the Lycurgian constitution of Sparta, which, which became such a model in subsequent centuries for constitutional reforms, even all the way up to, to America. Those reforms were a political response to the demand of agency, the demands of agency, of farmers in those societies. 
Now, in the Greek world, relatively wealthy farmers were also the core of the military. They were hoplites, right? So hoplites were the sort of heavily armored infantrymen that made up the phalanx, which was the principal fighting unit of antiquity and arguably the most successful fighting unit of antiquity as described in Thucydides and in in Herodotus' histories of, of the Persian War and the Peloponnesian Wars, right? Now, those hoplites, which were so central to the defense of the Greek polis, had therefore demands of political agency. They wanted to be participants in the political decision-making of their communities. And that's the sort of political engine of reform that brought then democracy and various forms of even republicanism. Now, they were militarily indispensable because they were wealthy. And they were wealthy because they relied on rather productive rain-fed agriculture. Each of them were an independent economic unit that were able to essentially manage their production on the basis of what came down from the sky. And so in the book, I spent quite some time trying to make this point that you could map political power on the geographic distribution of rainfall, right? Now, there are plenty of cases in history where similar types of distribution of rainfall didn't produce democratic experiments. So I'm not making the claim that one forces the other, but I'm making the claim that there's a synergy, that one incentivized the other. And so it turns out that even the most important institutions of our political life, the idea of democracy and, and of a republic, have their roots in the in a dialectic relationship between people and water on the landscape. And you go into that quite deeply. There's also the beginnings of globalization. I at least think of globalization as a a relatively modern phenomenon, but it's not. Just very briefly talk about that. Yeah, and it's it's important in this story because trade between distant places, and particularly the trade of agricultural products, between different places is in fact in a way a trade of water, right? You grow something in a place with its water and you sell it to somebody else who therefore does not have to grow that particular crop in their particular home, therefore not using their own water, right? So it's a trade of water. And it turns out that such regional integrated and then globalized integrated systems are not an attribute only of the 20th century. In fact, the first kind of type of globalization, it wasn't truly global, but it was global for the purposes of those living in it at the time, is actually in the Bronze Age. The late Bronze Age, second millennium BCE, has a system of integrated trade that runs from Scandinavia all the way to the Indus. And then you get to classical Greece and and the world of Rome. And in many ways, those two were globalized systems of trade in which uh, the economy was integrated across multiple peoples and multiple, you can't really call them nations, but multiple sort of institutions across very, very broad geographies. And, And that sort of integration, economic integration, which in Europe sort of in some ways disappears at some point after the fall of the Western Roman Empire, but continues in China and in other parts of the world, then becomes truly global in the 19th century with the British Empire. And all those are the forebears of the current form of globalization, which we live in right now. Well, what we're talking about is how politics shapes what's allowed to happen and how it happens. And when you talk about commerce in this, is particularly agricultural products, is really water from one place going to another. In the United States, it's become quite controversial that, for example, in the desert state of Arizona, wealthy Saudi Arabian interests have bought land and are using very scarce Colorado River water resources to grow alfalfa and feed 
which is being then shipped back to Saudi Arabia. It's not well known, but it's happening. And it's a perfect example of that. But it's kind of crazy, because if you're going to do that, why do it in a desert state like like Arizona. All right, that's a, that's an aside, but it is... It's well, a- but uh, Joy, I think that's an important example for, for two reasons. First is, it just shows that these types of phenomena in some ways continuously happen throughout the course of history. That story is a similar story to the story that we've seen in the beginning of the 20th century, and it's a similar story in a way that we saw in the Bronze Age. And so one of the key messages of this book is that when you look at the world through the lens of water, you realize that a lot of the same mechanisms are at play even today. The second point to make is that if you think that water and choices we make with water are purely scientific engineering and technical choices, you then can't explain why you will end up in that particular situation, right? And in fact, the reality is that the water choices that we make are almost never just about rational economics and engineering. They're often the result of politics, sometimes uh, politics that are hidden. And that's the real danger. That's when you end up in highly inefficient solutions like the one that you just described, where you are growing a very low-value crop in a desert to then be transported halfway across the world. That's because those choices have happened behind closed doors and in contexts where they haven't fully been examined. And that was one of the key motivations for my book is to reveal the fact that, folks, this is politics with a big P. These are fundamental choices about what our home looks like. We need to pay attention. Yes. And of course, the the power behind that is money. The Saudis have it. And so... They are actually making the choices. But anyway, back to the ancient world. It's very important that we spend a moment or two on Rome. And you bring up res publica, and that is the common good, the commonwealth. And it's also the root of our word republic. That's right. So talk about res publica. Joy, I think that your point about people having money and therefore making decisions for us is the result of not spending enough time thinking about what a republic actually is, right? And a republic is a civic compact amongst people living together, right? And it balances, at least in the Roman conception, which is kind of what informed also the founding fathers and the federalists of the American tradition, is trying to balance individual liberty and collective agency in the service of a common good, right? So the fundamental premise of a republic is this idea of self-government in some sense. You're not building a state around a king. You are creating a community of people, a commonwealth, who are pursuing a common life and a common objective together. But at the same time, they are a collection of individuals who have certain rights and certain liberties. Now, in the world of Rome, the parallels with modernity are limited, right? You have to remember that Rome was also a slave society, When you're talking about the rights of individuals in Rome, you're talking about the rights of male heads of families, right? So this is not a perfect parallel, but it is important to recognize that a lot of that DNA then gets transmitted all the way to the present. Now, in the case of Rome, what's interesting is that when we think about Roman water, we tend to imagine that the story of Roman water is one of aqueducts and big infrastructure, right? But in reality, that's not the central story of the Roman res publica. So how does Rome organize to deliver water security to this vast and growing imperial project that's organized around its republic? Well, it's through a system of trade, right? So it's a collection of individuals, mostly farmers, because again, until the 19th, 20th century, we're always talking about agrarian economies, 
and so in Rom, it's a collection of farmers, and the way in which water security is delivered is by underwriting a system of trade that spans the whole Mediterranean and that brings to Rome food from Turkey or from Spain or ultimately from Egypt when it gets conquered by Octavian, so as to ensure that at any given moment, if any part of the empire fails in food production, Rome at its end center continues to have a steady supply of food. And in order for a market to exist and the market to be functional like that, you need legal institutions, you need a reliable safety, right? And so the function of the republic is to deliver all of those uh, kind of institutional goods like security, like recourse to the law, such that a market of that size can function and can deliver water security and food security to all of its citizens. And so Rome is an interesting case because in some ways it's a completely alien world to ours, but in some others it develops some institutions that are still very much at the heart of how we think about governing the landscape and governing water on the landscape today. We won't go into it, but their engineering was truly phenomenal. And in fact, some of their engineering is still in use today. We've been looking at the Western Hemisphere, but there's also the story of China, which is very ancient. Would you please talk about water and the role of early developments in China? We were just talking about Rome. The transition of the, the peak of the, the Republic in Rome is around the first century BCE. Then it becomes Octavian's Augustus Empire, essentially. That's the same time at which Han China is reaching its first sort of peak, right? And so you have this world in the first century, from the first century BC to the first century CE, during which Rome around the Mediterranean and China in Han China in the Far East are sort of comparable states in size, in population and in, in power. And so all through the book, in a way, China is a counterpoint to the Western story that the likes of me and you and others would be more familiar to. And China is interesting because it developed in a completely different hydrology, in a completely different water environment from the water environment that birthed the institutions of democracy and the republic, right? So in the Mediterranean, most agriculture is rain-fed. We have a seasonal cycle, much like in North America, with spring and summer and fall and winter and predictable rain periods that more or less match the needs of agriculture and, and wheat production. Now, you go to China, and China has these vast rivers, the Yellow and the Yangtze above all, which are fed by monsoons that happen at very, very specific times in the year and provoke these vast and very, very powerful floods that are the the foundation of the relationship between China and the rivers. So whereas we had the problem of producing crops and grains with water that came down from the sky... The Chinese primarily had the problem of defending themselves from these powerful destructive floods that periodically would escape the natural embankments of these rivers and destroy everything around. And so the story of the development of the state in China that I tell in the book over the course of the centuries is very much in response to that uh, reality. And indeed, up until the 17th, 18th century, China was still the preeminent hydraulic state in the world. In fact, if you read The Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith spends quite some time talking about China and the remarkable water infrastructure that the Chinese empire had built that connected this vast empire together, ensuring a functional market and even incentivizing division of labor. And in fact, Adam Smith sort of saw 
China, as a far more advanced society at the time and a far more advanced economy at the time. And one of the explanations he provided for that was indeed the sophisticated water engineering that China had developed over time. That argument then evolves over time. And by the time we get to the late 19th century, people are puzzling. At that point, the British Empire had essentially conquered a quarter of the world and America was emerging out of the Civil War. And people sort of wondered why China was gradually falling behind. And again, oddly enough, they ended up landing on the idea that water had something to do with that too. So the relationship between China and water is is structural to their history, structural to Western understanding of China, and I would venture to say also structural to how China is behaving today. Rome falls... There's hundreds and hundreds of years that we don't know a whole lot about, at least in the West. And then at that point, the Holy Roman Empire and the Church of Rome is in control of Europe until 1300s, 1400s. Take it from there. What developments occur? The book being a broad history of civilization that we sort of having this cavalcade through the centuries. But indeed, you're right. I mean, I think there's a there are some important milestones there, and I would identify two in sort of the first part of the second millennium in Europe. Right. The first is the rediscovery of Roman law, which happens in the 12th century in Bologna, in fact, which is the city where I'm originally from. I sound English, but I'm actually Italian by birth. And the rediscovery of Roman law of the Codex Juris Civilis, the the Justinian law code, is transformative to the European landscape. Because as you said, Europe at that point is a world of barons and monasteries, fundamentally, where these universal institutions, the Holy Roman Empire and the church, are sort of claiming the inheritance of the Roman state, but without any of its institutional structure, right? So it's a very weak governance of the landscape. And so the landscape is very, very fragmented, and it's particularly fragmented in Italy, which leads to enormous amounts of litigation, right? So you need rules to make sure that people come to some agreement as to how to use a river or a canal, who gets to decide how to irrigate a field, who gets to own an island if a river suddenly floods and leaves behind a new piece of land, right? All these questions need rules. And until the 12th century, there isn't a universal law system that people can resort to, right? And so everything has to go down to the decisions of the king or the pope if you're in the papal state. And so the rediscovery of the Roman law code introduces this kind of lingua franca, legal lingua franca, that gives people an instrument to make decisions on the landscape. So that's a very important milestone, which then has implications all the way to later on the treaties of Westphalia and and so forth. The other big milestone that you were alluding to is the 1300s, 14th century, after the great plagues that really decimate the population of Europe, you suddenly have a very odd situation where the number of people has dramatically reduced whilst the assets have remained more or less the same. The plagues destroyed people, but didn't destroy the assets of the wealth. And so wealth concentrates and labor is reduced, thus creating a very powerful incentive for massive increases in productivity. You need to produce far more with far fewer people. And the way in which people start doing that is by harnessing the power of water and really investing in water mills, in the water systems, in systems of canals and transport to start knitting together the markets of Europe that hadn't really been knitted together ever since the Roman state had collapsed in the West some thousand years earlier. And so those are two very, very important developments that lead to essentially the 
legal tradition that we still rely on today everywhere. And the instruments of business, finance, the modern company, etc., that that arise out of this investment in the landscape. And so that's really, in a way, where modernity starts. It's in those transformations of the end of the Middle Ages or the early modern period. We're speaking with Giulio Boccoletti about his book, Water, a Biography. I was intrigued by your take on Machiavelli. He has had a pretty bad rap among most thinkers who think of him at all. He's usually seen as a bad guy, but you don't see him that way. Just take one minute to share with our listeners your approach to Machiavelli. Sure. Machiavelli has a bad red in sort of common parlance because people think of him as the guy who said that the end justifies the means and, and sort of the ultimate political realist, right? And that's largely based on his book called Il Principe, The Prince which many sort of study in college. But in reality, Machiavelli is incredibly important because he's one of the architects of modern republicanism. He reintroduces, he helps, he's a humanist, and he helps reintroduce the ideas of uh, republicanism that had survived only in Byzantine writing and Arab writing and uh, up to that point into the Western tradition. And so he's incredibly influential. And he's also influential because he's a practitioner. Machiavelli is not just an intellectual. He's an administrator in the Second Florentine Republic, which is a relatively short-lived republic during which people ask these questions of how would you construct a state in which self-government is the fundamental principle, right? Something that today we sort of take for granted, but at the time was a rather novel way of thinking about this. The intellectuals of the 13th, 14th century tended to think of the empire and the king and the monarchy as the sort of default form of the state, right? Whereas Machiavelli is a strong proponent of the republic. And in fact, that's a famous writing is his commentaries on Livy, on the great Roman writer of the republican era. And he writes a fair amount in that book about the relationship of the republic with the landscape. And so in the book, I describe in quite some detail the way in which water and the control of the landscape plays a role in shaping the ideas of Republicans like Machiavelli in the early modern period. He's writing at the end of the 1400s, the beginning of the 1500s. This is when Columbus has landed in the islands of the Caribbean. There's all this exploration by Europeans, primarily Spanish and Portuguese at that point. I would like you to take a moment to talk about the exploration of the Amazon River Basin and what it was like when it was first discovered, because we think of it in a very different way now. And that history has been lost and it really needs to be refound. Yeah, that's one of the really fascinating sort of chapters, if you will, that I encountered as I was researching the book, which is that... We tend to think of the Amazon forest and the Amazon basin as fundamentally a pristine environment, virgin forest, if you will, at most inhabited by a few isolated indigenous tribes until sort of we came along and then eventually sort of started really encroaching on the forest and, and then you have sort of deforestation problems that you have today. In reality, when you look back and you look, you read the sort of reports that the very first Western explorers wrote of their experiences of the Amazon, you get a very different picture. And in particular, there's a memoir written by a friar called Gaspar de Carvajal, who accompanied a fellow by the name of Francisco de Orellana down the Amazon, the first Europeans to travel the Amazon from source to mouth. And when you read this book, which only reappeared in the 19, a translation in the 19th century, you read of a landscape that's populated by thousands and thousands of people. 
Gaspar de Carvajal describes white cities along the river as they travel down. He describes tens of thousands of people showing up, in some cases, to fight them. Of course, the Europeans were mostly plundering and looting as they went along, right? So it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily a particularly friendly set of encounters. But he describes a, almost like an urbanized environment. And for years, people thought that these accounts were essentially made up. Because we couldn't imagine that that was, in fact, the state of the Amazon at the time. And then what has happened more recently in this last 20, 30 years is a fair amount of archaeological evidence has emerged to suggest that, indeed, parts of the Amazon, probably around the, the river and its tributaries, but maybe even inland, was quite densely populated. And what the archaeologist suggests is that these populations, which counted in the millions, right? I mean, we're talking about, nobody really knows, but it's probably several million people, had a very different relationship with the landscape than we have. Whereas the Western tradition comes from, the, originally from the Neolithic revolution that happened in, in the Fertile Crescent that we were talking about earlier, and that is based fundamentally on domesticating a small set of animal and plant species. The populations of the Amazon pre-European conquest had domesticated the entire landscape. And so they didn't have the sort of separation of urban and rural communities that we tend to have. They had constructed an entire forested landscape within which they lived in rather dense communities. They had mounds to collect the water that flooded from the rivers so that they could store freshwater fisheries. They grew orchards on those rivers. They depended on various types of vegetables like squash that could grow in the tropical forest. And it was a completely different relationship with the water landscape, which incidentally demonstrates that the variability of solutions, the variety, the diversity of solutions that human societies can come up with in dealing with the water landscape is far greater than what we see around us today, right? I mean, you travel to Japan or to Los Angeles or to Bologna, where I come from, or to London, where I'm now, and you kind of see the same basic engineered way of dealing with water. But it turns out that if you look back in history, there are many other branches to that story that sort of ended at some point that had come up with very different solutions. And the Amazon is one of those branches. Then those populations disappeared. They were largely decimated by the diseases that the Europeans brought with them. And the Amazon then regrew and largely turned into this not populated forested landscape that we know today. But that is a sort of fascinating story that I feel provides an interesting counterpoint to the, the Western story of water relationship that, that I describe in the book. Okay, so we're going to have to just pass over vast amounts of your book to get closer to the modern era. And I want to now, in the time we have left, focus on from the late 1800s to the current period. And you use Dr. Sun Yat-sen as a thread throughout your book. Yeah. Because of time limits, really be concise about his work, and then we'll, we'll see what we can do after that. The book is, uh, starts and ends with Sun Yat-sen, because Sun Yat-sen is the father of the Chinese Republic. He's the radical who inspired the revolution that uh, overthrew the Qing dynasty and eventually established the First Republic at the end, beginning of the 20th century in China. And he's the originator of the idea of Three Gorges Dam, which is the biggest dam in the world today. It sits on the Yangtze River, the main stem, and is to 21st century China what Hoover Dam was to America in the 20th century. That is, it's the symbol of the power of the state to engineer the landscape in service of the public good, right? 
And it turns out that the Three Gorges Dam is also the piece of infrastructure that has given the Chinese state today the confidence to go around the world, provide and finance advice and engineering expertise to many developing countries in an attempt to help them develop in a way that it has done by essentially re-engineering its own water landscape. And so some will have heard of the big dam that's being constructed now on the Nile, on the Blue Nile in Ethiopia. That's a vast, it's a large piece of infrastructure that in many ways is possible. People imagine it possible because China was able to deliver such a huge piece of infrastructure. Three Gorges Dam is 10 times the size of Hoover Dam, just to give you a sense of scale, right? So Sun Yat-sen is at the heart, is, is the origin of that story. And he's an interesting blend because, he, you know, he grew up in initially in China, but was then educated in Hong Kong as a medical doctor. He then traveled the world and ended up in London at the end of the 19th century, where he absorbed the political philosophy and ideas of the radicals that lived in, in London at the time, including Marxists and including sort of the radicals that then would go on to fuel the revolution in, in Russia, and then eventually comes back to China and, and sort of represents a, an incredible synthesis of all the ideas that I, in some ways, try to describe over the course of the book. And so I start with him as a starting point, and then throughout the book, he, he reappears. And I end with him because in large part, the story of water now in the 21st century may well be a Chinese story if you look at the whole world. He's a very important and interesting character and also provides, as you say, a thread through the entire narrative of the book. You bring up an important point, how these dams and other water infrastructures are paid for. And one of the things I found interesting in your book is, until relatively recently, it was not governments or states that did this. It had to be groups of investors. Would you please talk about that evolution? Well, all of the 19th century and the first quarter of the 20th century, most water infrastructure was financed by private capital. And even when the state got involved, it got involved on the premise that its investment would be then repaid by commercial activities. So, for example, in the first half, the progressive era of the United States, when the Bureau of Reclamation was building its first dams and its first projects, the idea was that then the farmers who then were able to grow crops on the irrigated land would then pay for the infrastructure through the tariffs that they paid to the pieces of infrastructure. So for a large part of the story of engineering, of modern engineering of water, indeed, it was the private sector that delivered this infrastructure. Another example, of course, are the canals that get built all across the eastern seaboard at the time of Washington and after, right? All of these were, were sort of private sector endeavors. It's really an anomaly of the 20th century, of the first half of the 20th century, that the state becomes such a protagonist of the transformation of the water landscape. And it really accelerates with uh, the New Deal era. Many of the investments that are made at that time, including the Tennessee Valley Authority, for example, are essentially sponsored by, by the government. But even at that time, incidentally, they were underwritten by the government, but they still were expected to operate like private companies. And it's really at that point when the state gets involved as this massive underwriter that the replumbing of the world takes off. And one way to think about this is that, you know, if you think about the 1900s, very early part of the 20th century, in the world, there were very few pieces of infrastructure that could store water on any significant scale. In 1904, the largest piece of infrastructure, which had been largely privately developed under the auspices of the British government, was the lower Aswan Dam on the Nile, right? Almost nothing of what came down from the sky was really caught. 
by the time you get to the 1970s, we globally catch a fifth of anything that comes down from the sky on land. And that massive replumbing of the planet was done largely on the back of states' investment in the sort of second and third quarter of the 20th century. So it's a really interesting transition that goes from the private sector playing a fundamental role in developing the landscape to then a period, half a century of the state really driving extraordinary transformation all across the world. And then by the time you get to the end of the 20th century, you're back into this world that's dominated by markets. And in fact, water development slows down until, until China shows up and starts funding and financing the development of water infrastructure all over the place. The investors form corporations. And we're going to get back to climate change now because we find ourselves in a global situation in which, in part, the actions of corporations have kind of transcended even sovereign governments. And although the knowledge is there, and in fact some of the corporations actually funded the research to develop the knowledge that the accumulation of methane and carbon dioxide is creating catastrophic climate change at this point. And it's manifesting in both serious droughts and serious floods. Now, since your book investigates the politics and the history of the politics, although your book doesn't directly address this, I would like you to address the dilemma in which we find ourselves that this institution of transnational global corporations is actually controlling or not controlling. I'm not even sure what the word would be, but because they are refusing to diminish their known effect on worsening climate, there doesn't seem to be any adequate institution to counteract that. I'm not sure what that question is to summarize it, but perhaps you do understand where I'm going with it. Climate system is changing, is responding to the amount of carbon dioxide that we've injected in it. That carbon dioxide comes from the energy revolution that we went through in the 20th century, some of which is driven by narrow corporate interests, but much of it is driven by simply the fact that the global economy is extremely thirsty of energy and the primary energy that we've relied on is fossil fuels, right? So that's where we are. And the result of that injection of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere is gradually changing the nature of the climate system. Because water is central, I mean, that's one of the points I make in the book over and over again, the water, water is central to the way in which the climate system works just physically. Inevitably, any change in climate is expressed through changes in water. And so therefore, you have droughts and floods and so forth. Now, the problem we have is that the landscape we are used to, uh, which is the product of the 20th century, right, of the replumbing that I just described in the 20th century, is simply not going to be adequate for dealing with the kind of water events that we expect will happen in the 21st, right? An example I give of this is the engineering that was done on the Cumberland River in Tennessee, where quite famously in 2010, it was a, a vast flood that hit Nashville. And what happened simply was that the river is actually quite engineered. There are a number of dams that are supposed to catch water. The problem is they were in the wrong place. 
most of the dams that have storage capacity are upstream in the Cumberland, and most of the rainfall, the concentrated rainfall, happened to come downstream of those dams. And so they weren't there to catch it, and so Nashville was flooded. And that's a sort of little story that represents the the problem that we face, which is we replumbed the planet, assuming a certain distribution of rain in, t- in time and space. And because the climate system will be changing, we now find ourselves with a, with a plumbing system that's inadequate to manage the future. So question then is, what do we do? Part of it, of course, is trying to mitigate as much as we can those changes. If we can reduce the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and we can limit the degree to which the climate system will change, well, that, that will help, right? So part of the reason for reducing emissions and transitioning to a low-carbon economy is that we are actually not prepared for the consequences of what that will bring. But part of it is also rethinking how we replumb the planet. And that, again, becomes a, an important political question, which is where we started. This is not just an engineering problem. The challenges of having more frequent storms, more frequent floods, the challenges of having catastrophic droughts that then lead to fires, like the ones that we've seen in the West of the United States, don't just demand technical solutions. They pose political problems. Who decides how we should live in these landscapes? Who decides whether we should have uh, a green Arizona? Who decides what our home should look like? And who decides how many risks we should just be willing to live with and how many risks we should try to avoid? Those are not technical questions. They're fundamentally political questions. And that's why, in a way, I wrote this book, is to try and give language to people to understand that these are the questions that we've always confronted over 10,000 years, ever since we became sedentary. And we thought in the 20th century that we conquered nature, that we had forever solved the problem, that we didn't have to worry anymore about droughts and floods and that that problem was solved. Well, it turns out we were wrong. That illusion has now broken. And those same questions are going to come up again and we need to confront them together. You do give a history of the evolution of institutions And we find ourselves in this era, in my opinion, out of balance. National sovereignty, at least in the United States, seems to be subservient to corporate sovereignty. We find ourselves in the situation where the democratic elements of our republic are being undermined by Supreme Court decisions which allow corporations' personhood, I mean, if that isn't crazy enough, they're allowed to give limitless amounts of money to persuade the population with disinformation. And this is beyond politics at this point. It's existential. It remains to be seen whether the biosphere can continue to support human life in the foreseeable future. I wonder what you think of that sort of concern. Well, I mean, I think we we have time. And the, the fact is that, unfortunately, I think that the problem, you know, and this is borne out in history over and over again, the fundamental problem is that the victims of what's going to happen to the climate system are going to be the most vulnerable, or at least the most vulnerable will be the first victims of this. And so there's an unequal distribution of the impacts that we are likely to see. And so this is not really just an issue of kind of technical solutions, it's an issue of justice, it's an issue of equity, of of making sure that we protect the most vulnerable in society and the most vulnerable around the world. Incidentally, also for our own interest, because again, the history of water over and over shows that 
if you don't do that, if you don't protect the most vulnerable, the most, the most vulnerable tend to move and then bring the problem to you, right? And so what's the solution to that? Well, part of what I try to argue is that the states and the political systems that we live in are still the most powerful instrument we have to answer some of these fundamental and existential questions, but they do require citizenship. All too often, we think of ourselves as consumers, but actually the story of water suggests that these are political problems that require citizens' agency, citizen action. And so if there's one kind of call that comes out of this long history is for political engagement. You know, you talk a lot about corporations, but corporations exist in rules and we create those rules. We give them those rules. We can take them away. We can change them. But that can only happen if we all participate in the political process. And so in a way, the book is an argument for the fact that environmental militancy and and the management of water on the landscape has to pass through the participation of everyone in political institutions. Giulio Boccoletti, we really have just about run out of time, and there's vast amounts in your book we haven't covered. I want to give you the opportunity within two minutes to choose one thing we haven't talked about to share with our listeners. Well, I think that it's this point we were talking about just now. In the book, particularly in the 20th century, we have seen many different types of political arguments that go from the authoritarian experience that we saw in Russia and China, and even in my own Italy in the first half of the 20th century, as well as the liberal tradition that we saw in America, in the UK, and in other places. And all of them used water and the landscape as an instrument of legitimacy. And so it's particularly important, I think, that people connect the dots between the technical and and landscape choices that we have to manage water, therefore manage the climate system on our national landscapes, and the political systems who end up having the power to make those choices. And so if there's one thing that we haven't maybe covered a lot is in the book, I spend quite a bit of time trying to point out that it doesn't have to be a single progressive story. It can take rather dangerous detours. And so it's particularly important, I think, that people ask themselves what the political implications of the water choices we face are, because they are existential choices, not just because they are about where water lands and what we can grow and whether we can survive, but they are about who has the power to make choices over our lives. And so I, I hope that people read this book and, and, and kind of see that it's a call for individual citizenship and individual agency. Well, Giulio Boccoletti, I, I very much appreciate your work and for joining us today on Forthright Radio. Your book, Water, A Biography, stimulates a great deal of thought and gives us historical context in which to think of these things. Thank you so much. Thank you for navigating through time so adeptly. It was, uh, it was a good cavalcade through history. You just heard an interview with Giulio Boccoletti, author of Water, a biography, published by Pantheon Books. We spoke with him on Friday, October 15th, 2021. Just hours later, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, who is reported to have earned $492,000 in 2020. Since 2011, Senator Manchin has received a total of $5 million from Enersystems Dividends, a contractor for a power plant that burns waste coal in his state and releases more sulfur dioxide and nitrous oxide per unit of 
negative energy than any other in West Virginia, announced that he would vote against the Build Back Better Act if it included the Clean Energy Performance Program. In a New York Times article from October 17, 2021, headlined, As Mansion Blocks Climate Plan, His State Can't Hold Back Floods, and subheadlined, as the senator thwarts Democrats' major push to reduce warming, new data shows West Virginia is more exposed to worsening floods than anywhere else in the country. As Upton Sinclair pointed out, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. Or maybe Senator Manchin thinks floods can't touch him since he famously lives on a 65-foot yacht almost heaven, when in D.C. Regardless, there is a certain irony of his living in almost heaven, as each season brings more and more people living in almost hell. Whether it is drought, famine, fire, flood, or heat beyond human endurance, humanity is at a crisis, our responses to which will determine how hellishly our history unfolds. Historically, the United States has been the greatest contributor to greenhouse gases, and simple ethics requires that we contribute a commensurate amount to the steps needed to slow down, stop, and turn around the harm this has done to the biosphere. As Giulio Boccoletti chronicled in his History of the Politics Surrounding Water, which is one of the greatest factors in climate, it is imperative that all of our institutions, political, economic, and social, must face the situation and devise responses to meet the challenges. In these responses are opportunities to acknowledge and rectify past injustices, harms, and inequities, and create new systems and institutions to forge a livable future. This requires conscious response from each of us from single individuals up to every organizational unit of humanity, from families to local, state, and national governments to transnational corporations. And even there, change is evident. Newsweek reported on October 19, 2021, in an article headlined, Joe Manchin's Climate Objections Opposed by BP and Shell, excerpts of which I quote here. BP and Shell are among 17 companies throwing their support behind the Build Back Better Act's climate provisions, which are being thwarted by Senator Joe Manchin. The Clean Energy Performance Program is the focal point of President Joe Biden's proposed climate change legislation. It would pay electric utility companies that switch from fossil fuels to renewable or clean energy sources and fine those that don't. Adding to the chorus of support for the Biden administration's clean energy program is a letter by Shell, BP America, and 15 other companies to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. It said that it believes that private sector and government action were required for the U.S. to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions. Quoting the letter, 
To that end, we support the robust climate provisions in the Build Back Better Act and request their inclusion in the final legislation. The climate provisions in the Build Back Better Act support our own investment in low-carbon innovation and will help us grow our business and remain competitive globally while also meeting our climate goals, the letter said. As more and more people organize and come so close to achieving effective governmental response, will it really be stymied by a single individual, Joe Manchin of West Virginia? And as international efforts are scheduled to begin October 31st in Glasgow, Scotland, at the 26th Conference of the Parties, leaders from more than 190 countries, thousands of negotiators, researchers, and citizens will come together to strengthen a global response to the threat of climate change. The goal is to secure global net zero greenhouse gases by 2050 and keep an increase of 1.5 degrees centigrade within reach. Some question the effort, noting that after 30 years, little has been achieved. And it's true that powerful forces engage to thwart efforts to turn the tide of catastrophic climate change. But if the moral rightness of this cause is not enough to effectuate change, perhaps the increasing evidence of the existential threat will be. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker, and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production hosted and produced by Joy LaClaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media. You can also find links to articles referenced or pertinent to the interviews there at forthright.media. Till next time, this is Joy LaClaire signing out. All day I faced a barren waste without the taste of water, cool water. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening. Then can you see that big green tree where the water's running free and it's waiting there for me and you?